0: This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and today we're talking about violence in El Salvador and its implications both there and abroad. Earlier this week, police and soldiers armed with automatic weapons briefly occupied El Salvador's legislature. The demonstration was intended to pressure lawmakers to approve a $100 million loan to purchase new equipment to fight crime in the country of $6.4 million. As you may know, El Salvador has one of the highest homicide rates in the world with much of the violence committed by criminal gangs and part of what some describe as a broader national culture of violence. In fact, the violence is so bad that many El Salvadorans who can flee the country, migrating north, some as far as to the United States. It's a dire situation, but a few people are working to tackle these challenges and create change. Recently, Rosa Anaya came to Chicago as the council's Gus Hart visiting fellow. She's been an advocate for peace in El Salvador for 20 years, addressing the lingering violence rooted in the country's history. She runs Second Chances, a Catholic relief services program that rehabilitates inmates in four prisons by preparing them to return to society and the workforce. Here's our conversation. I want to start out by just painting the picture of the degree to which violence impacts society and daily life in El Salvador. We hear about, you know, murder rates of something like fifty-one per every hundred thousand lives, which translates into, you know, I believe fifteen hundred murders last year in a country of of, of six million people. Could you share with us a little bit about what does that violence mean day-to-day for people's lives? How do they experience that violence and the gang activities that are broader, obviously, than just murder?
1: So, um, interesting enough, I will set an example of what I heard yesterday here in Chicago. Um, We drove a cab, and the person who was driving us here was telling us, just as we are getting out of, of the car... You know, he went about how his life in a neighborhood that uh, is, um, you know, it's thought of very violent here. Uh, He was describing, this didn't happen. I'm 61 years old now. This didn't happen before. Now I feel, you know, my my family has to get out. I feel that I can see things that are are violent every day. I don't feel safe in my community. And and there's all of this dynamic around uh, my neighborhood now that doesn't seem right. And there's all this violence happening. And and I was thinking I could be talking to a cab driver in, in El Salvador. And in the other hand, I've been walking around beautiful, you know, Chicago, beautiful uh, places. We went to see all this great buildings and architecture. And so if I can relate and you, if you could relate to that, that is how life is in El Salvador. In On one side, you can live your life in a bubble and think everything's okay, but when you go down deep into the communities to where the majority of people that don't have access to those beautiful places live, they have to live in fear. They have to live thinking whether, you know, you leave your house in the morning, you kiss goodbye to your kids, and you know you may not come back and that for us is a constant trauma and we just go about life as it is and we just walk every day because that's what we have to do we have to get up we have to go at work we have to go to school do whatever we need to do in the day and then and and then hopefully come back in uh, in the night for to go back to our homes and even then is still Not a safe place. And I say this because when violence becomes culture, then you do not notice as much. um, And you just continue your life, like, trying to ignore what's happening until it hits you hard. And you know it's going to be there all the time. It's just kind of like a little shiny thing. Um, And until it blinds you, then you notice it. Uh, So if I could describe that in a way on how we live in El Salvador is it's a normal life, except when it's not, it hits you hard.
0: So my understanding is one of the reasons for the violence or or one of the vehicles for the violence is gangs and organized gangs in, in El Salvador. Is, is that an accurate impression? Is that the, are those the, 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 the folks or organizations who are driving the violence and how widespread is that?
1: So I talked about uh, culture and violence and gangs are the easy monster to sell mm-hmm. <laughs> in the media, but we are in a society where we normalize uh, the men beating the women. The parents beating the children, the boss, you know, putting down their workers, um, there's economic violence, there, there is all sorts of different types of violence in El Salvador that we have normalized. Think, you know, this is the society we live in, so it must be okay, but it's not. And we have to go back, we have to be conscious, we have to be aware that it is not normal.
0: One of the dominant um, approaches to this violence in the country, as I understand it, is a policy called la mano dura, which uh, can you explain what that is? And it's also seen as not having been very effective. So why is that?
1: So, again... Um, If I could relate to things that happen here in the U.S., Uh, you know, the RICO law, there's been in L.A., it all started with this idea of, you know, hard-hand policies. We copy-pasted that, Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. brought it to El Salvador, Mm -hmm. to Guatemala, to Honduras with this idea that, again, we need to uh, sweep under the rug the people that are bad, Mm -hmm. right?, um, so that the good people live happily ever after.
0: So that means imprisoning them, a lot of police force in order to suppress violence. And-
1: Massively having a number one enemy mm-hmm. of the people. And what that means for our communities is, you know, we we joke about, um, you know, the, the, the rates are uh, the murder rates are so high. Uh, And the people that suffer the most being victims and victimizers are young people, which I was looking at your uh, statistics here in Chicago, it's the same thing. So same ages, men uh, usually are the ones that are being the most victims and victimizers at the same time. So you... You hear somebody say, "Oh, you know, my brother, my, uh, you know, my father, whatever, just just died." Oh, yeah. What? What did he die? Oh, natural causes. How old was he? You know, twenty-five. Oh, so he was killed, right? Because it is, you know, naturally you will die after being shot five times, and that for us has been becoming that that um, that normalization of, of violence. So. So hard-hand policy is a response to the idea that you will beat people into uh, senses again and the frustration. So when you think about not not only the fact that the murder rate is really high, but the justice system, the, the amount of cases that actually go to trial um, – The person who did it actually is proven guilty in court. It's so minimal. What you have is a sense of impunity. So impunity uh, brings this sense of frustration in people. And so, you know, they tend to take their matters into their own hands because that's what impunity does. So we then tend to confuse that revenge is justice. And so we justify policies like hard-hand policies because we think we're doing the right thing. And and for me, it's always going back. There's this rhetoric about how, you know, every time we talk about the inmates and, and they their human rights, oh, you're defending all those delinquents, right? Like that's just just la amante de los delincuentes, right? It, it just comes back again and again. And my my response to that always has been Human rights exist so that good people protect themselves from becoming the monsters they hate the most, from becoming the people that uh, are beating up others, humiliating others, killing others, just to find that that was a per- bad person. And and I read this, this little meme, you know, Twitter and all that, um, that somebody shared with me. It's like, uh, so mom... Uh, So if we kill all the bad people, then all the good people are all that's left. And the mother answers, no, honey, only the killers are left. So it it is, again, this cycle. If impunity is what rules, revenge becomes justice. And what justice should be is a path for reconciliation. And that is to, to tie up my personal life. Is what we've been doing, what my family has been doing, what we have been doing, what I've been doing personally. Because if it takes a victim of violence to say no to revenge, then that is what we will do. But revenge means that the justice system works, that we get justice for the the wrong that was done to us. Uh, But justice for me doesn't mean I have to send somebody to, to jail. Justice for me uh, means that we can repair. That we there's going to be an alternative to the world that we wanna build in the future.
0: So, that's a wonderful transition to the work that, that you're involved in. And the program is called Second Chances, which is uh, you know very evocative. And it's built on this idea of restorative justice, which you were just talking about a little bit. I was wondering if you could expand a little bit just on what's the idea of why restorative justice can work to break these cycles of violence?
1: So, just to give you an idea of what Second Chances is, um, we have, as uh, Catholic Relief Services has been working since two thousand and nine adapting a model called Youth Build. And so we had uh, this model that has different components, you know, so uh, hard skills and soft skills, you know, um, job skills, education, uh, leadership development, um, entrepreneurship, uh, life skills, all of this, it's a huge package, right? So for, for our, the people that we work with in the territories and the communities, the kids come It's 16 to 25 years old, old more or less, uh, that at the moment that they uh, come to our program, they're not studying, they're not working, um, and they're living in that particular community that is impacted by different expressions of violence. Uh, and pe- the first question people ask are the are they all gang members? It's like that is not my first question for them. I don't ask are you a gang member or not. Uh, what I ask them are you willing to prove that you want to change your life? And that is the most important thing for our programs to bring people in and draw them in because. Hardly anybody in my country believes that youth have the power to change in a positive way our own and transform our own uh, community. So that's what we create. We create spaces where um, we believe that you can change, that you will change with the right tools, with the right accompaniment, and that you hold somewhere in the line of your life a solution to your own problems and that you are willing to transform that in your into something good for your community Um, so that's what youth build in the territories does but as we were you know and think of this uh doll you know that little doll that is a tiny little one and then another
0: dolls the russian dolls one inside of another yeah
1: so for us, Second Chance is a little bit with it, this idea. So the youth-built model started with all of these different components. And as we went into the – and the deeper we went into the communities, the more needs that we found. So we stacked uh, a new component to each one of the, the the communities that we had. So we added family, um the entrepreneurship because it was it's really hard to get a job, uh, so all of this stuff and one huge piece of that is in order for us to start changing and created a common language of that that is unknown to us, which is peace mm-hmm. or peace building processes. Um, we needed to have that language between the people out in the street and the people that are in. The prisons. And that's how we started the Second Chances program. And we went into the prisons thinking oh, it, you know, the youth bill model will just work perfectly inside of the prisons. And we can have all these components where you teach soft skills and hard skills uh, inside. And then we have a loop. Like, we've seen the loop. We know there's a cycle between, you know, going into the prison, coming out, recidivism, going right back in because there are no opportunities. Let's use the same logic in a positive way. So that was our first mm-hmm. initial idea. Yeah. Well, guess what? Um, to our surprise, uh, there was a, a very interesting program that it was a little experiment that uh, the government was doing at that time. So we're talking two thousand fifteen, um, and what they were no sixteen, I think. So th- what they were doing is called the Jokamyu program, the I Change program. So basically more or less the components that the youth bill model has. You know. So you teach them uh, hard skills and a and little less soft skills. So we said, okay, let's support them with the soft skills. And just to give you an idea of what El Salvador prison system looks like. Uh, when we started, there were 21 prisons more or less back then. We have 28 prisons to date. There is one state-run university, one, just so you have an idea of where we're putting our efforts as a nation. So it's this cycle. We think we're the good people, right? But we have to think about where we are investing. So I said, well, 28 prisons, 49,000 people now, more or less. We're right behind the U.S. in the most incarcerated um, uh, population, yeah, So I said, 28, this is, to me, the largest scholarship program run by the government, right? So why not turn those places into institutes for peace and the inmates into peace promoters? So they will come out at some point, right? Who do you want them to be? They're going to be your neighbors. They're going to be, who knows? Your daughter's boyfriend, right? The person that comes out is the person we create because it's the state's responsibility to create the rehabilitation that they need. Anybody, you and I, under the right conditions, we have no idea how we're going to react to a certain uh, situation and end up in prison. We don't know that. We tend to think that that's never going to happen to us. We'll think again. When that happens, if that happens, how do you expect your own society to treat you? How do you expect your own society to give you that second chance? Okay, I made a mistake. Some greater than others, right? The more you're exposed to trauma and violence the worst your reactions are to things that are, may seem little. And let me give you one example. In El Salvador, we've had several cases now of people that get killed because they, the other guy got pissed off because he was in the wrong parking space. So, you know, that, and that, that's it. We've had cases of, of men killing their wives, you know, because whatever. The kitchen was not clean. Uh, So the more trauma and exposition that you have to that that violence, you think your brain is wired to think that a violent reaction is the only option you have. Um, So what we do is precisely show you, show your brain that there are other paths and that you can change that wiring uh, in your brain if you Practice So practice, practice, practice. Um, and we give people specific tools that will allow them to remember what are their triggers at the moment when they know person triggers, uh, places triggers, word triggers. And how then to remember to take the other path that they've started to create create for themselves. So, you know, six seconds to ready. Breathe, right? It takes six seconds for that uh, little message to get to your prefrontal cortex and just react to, it's okay. Everything's going to be okay. This is not a threat to my life. I I can breathe and I can react in a different way. Those little things help us um help us and you know react in a different way and I will give you an example of what peace building in the prison have done for for the guys so um it's prison is El Salvador and you may have in one prison that was built for 800 people up to 2000 people um, so, in one of the prisons, I'm not going to say where it was because I don't want to put anybody in, in danger, but uh, one of the, the, the prisons it holds about um, 1,500 uh, inmates. And we'd started a group of people, 40, 40 of them were in our peace building program. And what we've done, and this is tied to the I Change program because the I Change program is basically saying, uh, somebody that knows something, whatever you know, teaches uh, uh, somebody else. So it's inmates teaching other inmates. So you have in some of the prisons, 99% of the people are in different activities. Um, so whether that may be learning how to make a hammock to playing, you know, chess, whatever, whatever, you're always doing something that somebody else is teaching you. Uh, so you've All sorts of different things. So what we did is let's use that in our advantage, take the uh, leaders in a a prison, and we'll teach them peace-building techniques. Because the logic is when they learn, they will teach other people. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're in this prison. We're half the way into our program, the peace-building program, and there was a, a riot that was happening. So there's something called, you know, they green light somebody because, you know, they have their own rules. Authorization
0: of killing, essentially, of somebody.
1: Yes. And so that, you you don't get involved. I mean, once that's happening, run. And as I'm listening to the description of the people that were the the peace promoters at that time, and I'm talking, we're, we're still very very young into the process, halfway into the process. So there isn't, you know, that I would think, oh my God, you know, this just worked, but it was so little. And and just remember that because with so little, you can totally change their lives. And And he was describing to us, so this guy's, you know, the Sector 1, Sector 2 came with machetes and all of the stuff that they had. Everybody was uh, really angry and, you know, round up to to, to kill this other person. And they were part of uh, another sector. And, And as he's describing, he's using the language that we taught him and he's saying something and and he describes god took over me right mm-hmm. like he used me as this intr- instrument but i remembered every single thing that you guys were teaching us so i could see we, we have something called the the violentometro so Vi- a thermometer oh, the that that can measure violence. Yeah. So what we do is the thermometer and we, we teach them the stages of, of ira, wrath. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh so you know you start getting angry, how you're face changes, how your blood is, you know, pumping, and then the thoughts that you have, the feelings that you have, the actions are es- escalated. So he's describing, "Oh, I saw them. I could see the rage in their eyes. I could see their shoulders up. I could see, you know, the machetes, and I started to tell them, Think about where the origin of this conflict is. Let's peel it like the onion. Like there's like all of this metaphors that that we usually uh, use. And let's think about where the origins are. Uh, Who who are the actors in this conflict? Uh, Breathe, you know, breathe. Six seconds to ready. You are right now. Your thoughts are going wild because uh, the amygdala is taking over Mm -hmm. your your actions. Uh, So as he's saying all of this, he said, I knew I had the guys because all of the other people that were part of the program, they were the firm first ones to click. They, they knew what he was talking about. They understood the language. And, and he said, think about the consequences. If you continue down the path of rage and if you spiral up the ladder of violence, there are going to be consequences for our families, for us, for our families. And we don't know where we're going to end up. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? So he started, you know, telling them, is it worth it? And, and he's like, I knew I had them when I could see their shoulders going down, when I could see their faces changing and that they lower their arms. And that's when I started, okay, let's talk about this. This is the point for dialogue. Who needs to talk with who? So he stopped 1,500 people from just engaging into who knows what could have happened, yeah. just by knowing the right language, the right thoughts, and what to say, and the people that were listening to him to understand what he was talking about. And it changed the—he it. He literally saved the life of many people at that moment. So that's just an example of how very little things— can actually change the life of of the people inside. And can you imagine 49,000 people in El Salvador who know violence, who are experts in violence, know how to go down that path, can find an alternative path and use that to transform our communities? That is going to be very precious. I will not see it in my lifetime, but someday it will happen
0: <laughs> that's really powerful and one of the things that the heart fellowship that's brought you to Chicago um, is is um, wanting to promote is learning lessons across societies right because when we started this conversation you were quite right and in- Pointing out the similarities um, in our society too, in Chicago and many large cities in the United States, many places in the United States um, have suffered from from violence. And you're here an opportunity to meet with people who are um, engaged in this kind of work here in this city. And I, I'm curious as you're talking to people in Chicago, two things. One is what of your experience, the story that you just. Told. What of your experience and approach is resonating most with the people that you're talking to here? And are there any uh, any ideas or lessons that you've heard here that make you think about something you might want to incorporate um, into your own work?
1: So, so I, I want to be very honest. One of the things there's so many similarities in the in the negative. Yep. And, and in the positive. So a lot of the things that I've heard, um, one being we need research in order to make decisions based on evidence and not hunch. So that's one of the key things that I, we're trying to do. The other is that we need to work uh, in different, in alliance with different actors, because we, we can't do it all. And as a society, we have built the wrong conditions. As a society, we need to build the right conditions. So never th- exclude any potential actor in in a different stage, uh, because this is all a process. So to um, encadenar, to link every single possible help that you can get, it's, it's never too much help. And then the third thing uh, for me that I've heard is that you need to involve people um, that have been part of that violence, that are perpetrators of that violence uh, in order to hear their voice and to act in, the, in to be models of how you act in a different way. Um, so for me to see that has been really powerful. We're doing that, but the difference is <laughs> the resources that people get here are way off the chart of we what we might think um, we could have. So to give you an idea, I hear you know some of the prog- programs working with six million dollars, with you know ten million dollars. I'm like, wow, that is insane. We work with five hundred thousand dollars for eighteen months. Uh, the teams here are uh, gigantic, right? Uh, there's like, you know, there's a few of us down there. <laughs> <laughs> but what we've done is uh, the same thing that I've seen here, you know, create alliances, look at the people that have the most interest in all of this, like the most, uh, the higher stakes. And, you know, mothers and, and, and grannies and and the guys, they, they really, given the opportunity, you have no idea. They will... Make miracles happen in, in ways that you never imagine. Uh, so that's our resources. That, that's what we uh, try to you know tap onto. Um, and, and so th- I, I, I keep thinking, man, if we had the, the what could we do? So we, were be- we are being funded currently to work in five prisons. We are starting to move forward, I think next month in almost 13. Uh, different prisons, not because we reproduce. And you remember the gremlins in the, in the movie, yeah. how you put a little bit of water and then they can't do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what's happening is that the authorities within the uh, penitentiary system were so excited to see the results of the program that they now adopted one of the curriculums, which is this uh, uh, CBT-based curriculum called I Am Ready. And it's now become an official rehabilitation program. So as cool as that may sound, the great challenge is we need to maintain quality and be able to scale. And that, that takes a lot of time. It, it this is there is no magic
0: i think that's a perfect place to to bring our conversation to a close and one of the things that strikes me in this conversation is you know there aren't easy simple solutions and it it is deeply rooted in individuals and in societies and those take time and people to uh, intervene um and bring about change uh so it's been wonderful to get a chance to hear your story and hear about the work that uh that you're doing and i'm so glad that you're here in chicago to share it as well because i imagine um uh it's important for people doing this work to um, be inspired by others who are who are having an impact in other places as well. So Rosa Anayaya, uh, who runs Second Chances, uh, Catholic relief services program that rehabilitates inmates in El Salvador. Thank you so much for being on Deep Dish and sharing your work with us.
1: Thank you for having me here. And please, everybody that's out there, just think about what your piece in this story is. It's not about pulling us apart it's about thinking of the things that we have in common so one thing that we have in common is that everybody wants peace so let's start there that's our baseline
0: fabulous thank you so much thank you and I also want to thank you for tuning in to this episode of Deep Dish. If you like the show, do me a favor and tap the subscribe button on your podcast app so you can get each and every new episode as it comes out. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would like today's episode, please tap share and send it to them as well. As a reminder, the opinions you heard belong to the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Our audio engineer for this episode is Andy Zarnecki. I'm Brian Hansen. and and we'll be back soon with another slice of deep dish